something that I make sure that I try to impart to people is that when you're setting that goal, you have to constantly ask yourself whether any part of the goal is dependent on the outside world. Because if any part of the goal is dependent on the outside world, then that isn't an appropriate goal because the goal has to be something that is within your control. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast, and welcome to the first episode of 2024. I'm glad you can join me. I was away for a few weeks in December and never released an episode. Life got busy. Had some personal things going on, was busy coaching my son hockey, and finishing up my master's degree. So here I am posting the first episode in a few weeks, and I am excited to bring our fascinating guest today. Before we get into the episode, if you've been enjoying this podcast, this podcast has been going on for a few years now, so thank you for listening, for supporting it. One way that can really help is to share this episode, the podcast, or any other episode with someone you think might enjoy my conversations. Also, you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. This year, 2024, I am looking forward to have more engaging conversations with academics, authors, creative individuals, all people who are trying to navigate this human experience of money that really fascinates me. Starting next week, we'll go back to regular episodes being released on Thursday. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Gutman. She's a clinical psychologist based out of New York. Dr. Gutman specializes in using CBT therapy, positive psychology, to have conversations around what life satisfaction really means. Over Dr. Gutman's 30 years in clinical practice, she realized that people were often striving for the wrong thing. Happiness, this elusive thing, happiness, as we've talked about on the show many times. Often, when we're trying to find happiness, we actually find dissatisfaction. Dr. Gutman believes the key is to focus on satisfaction and not just happiness. So she started a satisfaction revolution. Dr. Gutman recently published a book, Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of Lifetime Satisfaction. She also has a workbook, The Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction. Dr. Gutman is really trying to help people understand what satisfaction means to them and how can we create this enduring satisfaction that is really achievable and it's not this elusive goal like happiness is. And now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Jennifer Gutman. Dr. Gutman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. As you can tell, before we started recording, I just was yapping away. So I thought we better record it. I am pleased that you're joining me for this conversation. 
in around this idea of Beyond Happiness, the title of your book. As I was preparing for today, in your book, you mentioned facing doors, and I faced a lot of doors of where I should start, but I thought we would start with a story. Can you talk to us about your JFK customs story? Sure. I love to travel. That's something about me that people who know me are aware of because I've traveled to a lot of places, and I like to commemorate my travels with items that I buy from the locations that I visited. The items that I can buy can be large or small. So literally it can be something as small as when I was in Tibet, I went into a small antique store and found printing press templates from an antique printing press that was cost me pennies, or it can be as large as I found a wood-carved Lonesome George chair, which is the symbol of the Galapagos when I was in the Galapagos. So I wanted to ship home this very large chair. What I didn't know is that when I shipped it home, resting it from the arms of a JFK customs official would be quite something and a feat. And that took very many weeks because they did not want to release this chair to me. So you would think that I had learned my lesson, but then I went to China and fell in love with the Xi'an soldiers in China and I wanted to get a replica of the Xi'an soldiers. Most normal people would then get a small replica of a Xi'an soldier, but not me. I decided that I had to have a life-size replica of a (laughs) Xi'an soldier. (laughs) Now this from the woman who supposedly should have learned her lesson from the JFK officials from the Galapagos chair, but... No, I didn't opt for the small printing press templates. I wanted this life-size replica. Then I tried to ship that home and ended up having the same problem with the JFK customs officials again. But the idea being that these memories of things that I purchase are very important because whether I buy things that are large or small, they're very important and bring me a lot of satisfaction. So that last word, satisfaction, we... I recently had Dr. Amit Kumar on the show where he's researched the enduring levels of satisfaction when we spend our money on experiences. And it sounds like you're choosing to spend your money on experiences through these trips and then these larger souvenirs in some cases that help you (laughs) remember those trips. Can you speak to, I guess, on a personal level, what does that satisfaction look and feel like for you when you experience different parts of the world? A lot of what my research and my work has been on is that people are focused on the wrong thing. People focus on happiness and happiness is a quest for the wrong thing. Money doesn't buy happiness. Money buys, in my case, what I was talking about, it buys satisfaction. Happiness, like all emotions, comes and goes. It's not meant to be long lasting, no matter how much money you Financial happiness is dependent on something that's happening in the outside world. It's buying a sought-after piece of clothing or an impulse buy. Yes, you can feel happy fleetingly, but then that feeling goes away and then you're chasing something that's temporary. When you chase happiness, either by spending it or compulsively saving it, you set off an emotional roller coaster that I termed, it's sort of like stock market syndrome. You can feel an up that brings you pleasure, but not for very long, similar to how you would feel if you were playing the stock market. Financial satisfaction is different. 
striving for satisfaction doesn't create a stock market experience. What satisfaction offers is sustainable. Being satisfied is more planned. It's organized and executed. It's more controlled by you. So the feeling of pleasure lasts longer. It brings you a sense of contentment. It brings you a sense of peace. Happiness may be how you feel when a plane lands, but satisfaction is how you feel during or remembering the trip or how I feel when I'm choosing one of these items that every single time I pass by it in my home, it's not like I get a giddy feeling of happiness when I pass by it, but I do get a feeling of satisfaction, of contentment, of memory of the trip that brings me a very special and enduring feeling. Thank you. You allowed us to go down many different avenues there. And I, I think I just want to stick on the, the word choices between happiness and satisfaction. And intentionally, because a, that's a premise of your book, the word satisfaction, but also in our culture, this yellow smiley face is happiness. And there's this ever long race for Am I happy? Should I be happy? How can I use my money to be happy? And this stock market syndrome. What a, I love that idea. Cause to your point, these fleeting feelings of happiness definitely feel like the stock market syndrome. So can you just differentiate between happiness? I heard you say is a fleeting feeling where satisfaction is more of an enduring. I didn't catch if it was a feeling as well. Are these both feelings? So if you think about it, like satisfaction is the middle path. It's a sense of well-being. It's a sense of contentment. So if you think about satisfaction being the middle path that you experience all of the time with the emotions being on either side, happiness being on one side, sadness, all of the emotions that we feel being on either side of it. And emotions come and go. Although you could say that satisfaction or contentment is an emotion, it is, but it's an emotion that is more enduring because it's a more of a steady state kind of emotion. It's an emotion that we can control from within ourselves. It's an emotion Mm. that with the right techniques, we can create on our own if we have the right tools. Whereas happiness is something that comes from a neurotransmitter in our brain. We get a dopamine rush, a serotonin rush. Sadness also is something that comes from a neurotransmitter in our brain. Whereas something like satisfaction is something that we can, with the right tools, develop on our own. We can decide on a goal, meet that goal. And then once we achieve it, then we feel satisfied. And it's that same thing with contentment or peace. So that's why you've seen philosophers over the decades talk about try to walk the middle path, and then you'll feel all these emotions on either side of it. I, I That try to walk the middle path, I feel like is such a, a nice framing to anchor our minds to. Because even when I hear the word happiness, I, I, I almost feel this, this expectation that I better be smiling and I better not feel any negative emotions or feelings. Whereas I hear satisfaction and it's like I, I can welcome those. I can't tell you how many people, when I change the vernacular and I say, instead of thinking to yourself, like, you know, I'm going to be happy today, or, you know, were you happy today? If you change the vernacular to, I just want to end this day satisfied, Mm. or did you have a satisfying day, or were you content today? The way that liberates your brain from feeling like you're trying to achieve something that is 
actually unattainable to achieve something that is attainable, it just changes the whole mindset of a person. I've had so many people come to me and say, this is amazing. I feel so much different just because you gave me different language to achieve. And yet, our just like you said, our whole society is based around this word, happy, which sets us up for something that isn't achievable and then makes us feel despairing all the time because we're chasing a feeling that cannot last. Somebody sent me a picture the other day of a popcorn bag that on the bottom, it said, you know, the way to be happy is to like pop this popcorn. I mean, it is everywhere in our culture is, you know, this is the road to happiness, but, but it isn't like, it'd be great if the popcorn bag said like, feel satisfied tonight mm-hmm. eating this bag of popcorn, you know? You know, on this line of the popcorn bag where we're chasing this feeling. And I, I understand through going through your book, you had over the last 30 years, many clients like the one you name in the book, Andrea, where they're going through life, they're experiencing the ups and downs, but they're asking you this question, like, I have all this stuff, shouldn't I be happy? So when you reflect back on the progression of your experience, when did you start to see like, hey, there's a different way to answer this question, or there's a, there's a way to answer this question, shouldn't I be happy, when you started to bring in this, as you call it, satisfaction revolution? The moment in time where I had the shift when I started to, I mean, I had so many clients coming into me saying, I, you know, I'm failing at being happy. I mean, a lot of what I was getting was I'm failing at being happy. And my feeling was you can't fail at an emotion. (laughs) You can't fail at being happy. And so I I was spending a lot of time telling clients, well, you can't fail at that. It's not a thing. You're not going to come in and tell me you're failing at being sad. So you can't fail at being happy. So I was struggling a lot with that. And then I had three watershed events happen in, in quick succession in, in my life where my son had a life-threatening illness that required surgery and I had a life-threatening illness and then my father passed away. And it was in that moment that I thought to myself, you know, life is short, obviously, and I need to figure out what am I trying to do here? Like, I need to think about my family and I need to think about what message am I trying to get across because who knows, you know, what life is going to hit me with next and what's my aim here? Something, something is continuing to get, keep me going. And what is that thing? Because I certainly am not expecting to get up from all these events and be happy, but something is, is contributing to my resilience and what is contributing to my resilience through these events. And what do I continue to look for as the goal? And it was during that time that I was looking at the tools that I continue to use and that what I was aiming for was to try to continue to be satisfied. Was I trying to be content? I wasn't ever aiming to be happy, despite the fact that I kept ruminating on the fact that my clients felt like they were failing at happy. And then tried to figure out, okay, well, if I'm going to piece together what's leading me to assist me in being satisfied, what are those tools that I'm using? And that's when I started to talk to my clients about what if you were to think about satisfaction instead of happiness? And that's when I started to see a lot of light bulbs go off in their eyes and they were, they were like, oh, uh, satisfaction? That's an interesting concept. And I said, started to say, well, what if we put a moratorium on the word happy for a while and you only use the word satisfaction 
And let's see how you feel if, if you just don't say the word happy and you only tell your brain satisfaction instead. Let's see how you feel. And then I started to see a shift. And that's when I decided I wanted to start a satisfaction revolution. Can you speak to those shifts? I'm curious what those shifts looked and felt like for you. Well, I mean, what was exciting to me was watching my clients' whole demeanor change. Mm. They started, like, their self-talk would change. There was, like, a pop in their step. They seemed much less disheartened. They seemed much less despairing. They also were very interested in the tools that I had to offer that might contribute more to satisfaction because they were aiming now for something that was more enduring, something that was more sustainable, something that they could execute, a feeling that they felt like they could find within themselves as opposed to happiness, which felt so elusive to them. And they started to recognize that happiness was something that was indeed dependent on something that was happening in the outside world. And and what I tried to talk to them about was you can't spend your life trying to control things that are out of your control. And that's what happiness is. So instead, let's focus on satisfaction and let's focus on the things that you can control, which is only the things that are inside of you. And those are things like avoiding assumptions, making decisions, facing fears. And let's focus on those things because those are the tools that will help you be even more satisfied. You know, the the framing you have there, I think, is really interesting how focusing on external things outside of our control is linked to this happiness, which I guess removes our locus of control or our self-agency. Whereas yours, what I'm hearing you say is when we focus on satisfaction, we shift that control inwards, which I can imagine, like this is a podcast around money, but confidence around money, relationships, parent, everything starts to change when that internal locus of control is created. That's right. So it doesn't matter. Once you have an internal locus of control and you feel like you are the one that's deciding on and then executing each goal, whether it's a financial goal or any other, a relationship goal, a financial goal, a parenting goal, a career goal, it doesn't matter. But if you feel like you are the one that's executing the goal and something that I make sure that I try to impart to people is that when you're setting that goal, you have to constantly ask yourself whether any part of the goal is dependent on the outside world because if any part of the goal is dependent on the outside world, then that isn't an appropriate goal because the goal has to be something that is within your control. So if your goal is, I need to be promoted in the next six months, that's not a good goal. You don't have control over that. You have control over your performance, but you don't have control of your over the promotion. In the same way that if your goal is a financial goal that has to do with you know, money that's in the stock market, you don't have control over a financial goal that's related to the stock market, but you do have financial control if you decide to put your money in different, you know, different types of things, some which are more safe, some which are riskier, and then decide how you're going to, you know, invest in a lot of different things, knowing that, you know, you're going to have managed funds in different, in different ways. And, you know, how are you going to make decisions about that to a level that you're the most comfortable with, knowing that there's no right or wrong decision, and then decide what works the best for you. That's super interesting. And and perhaps is that where if I'm confident in the inputs, like the things that I can control, 
is that where we start to cultivate this contentment feeling? It's like, hey, I've done what I can do. I can't control the outcomes. Right. So you start to develop not only just a sense of contentment, but what's great about it is you also start to develop a sense of effectiveness in the world, self-respect, self-worth, mm. confidence. I mean, you start to develop and it is within all of those things that build up ego strength. That is why then it also leads to tremendous sense of resilience because this started from a place of how do I build resilience in people? Like how do people become more resilient? Well, you can't be resilient if you're constantly chasing a fleeting emotion. That doesn't lead to resilience. That leads to despair. My goal was how do I you know, build up people's ego strength to make them feel more resilient. But the more control you feel like you have over yourself, which is really all we have control over, then the more effective you feel in the world and the more resilient you end up becoming. Mm -hmm. So, and resilience for sure also leads to satisfaction. So it sort of is a loop in that the more satisfied you feel, the more resilient you feel, the more resilient you feel, the more satisfied you feel. And so the more that you are in control of the inputs to the best of your ability, and then knowing that you are, you know, in control of outputs to the best of your ability, then the more effective you feel in the world, the more confident you feel, the more self-worth you have, the more self-respect you have, et cetera. And that leads to satisfaction as well. I really like your focus on that, the inner control or the inner self-talk, cultivating this resilience. And you can see this when you, the way you open up your book, you talk about those three, as you called them, watershed moments. Just, I think it was in the introduction. You never know when you get a happiness book, if it's going to be around this thing, like think and you'll be happy, be happy, just be happy. Like this, the toxic positivity of like, just think you should be happy and you should be happy. I really appreciated how you, you talked about these really hard times in your own life. I'm bringing this up because you talked about resilience, but in the book, you call it Defiant? Defiantly resilient. Can you speak to why you specifically picked that word to describe the resilience? It's actually an interesting story. I was working with somebody early on when I was working on sustainable life satisfaction and I was talking to that person had asked me about the path and I was talking to her about the watershed moments and she was, was like, wow, those are a lot of things in a short period of time. What can this is before I was even talking about resilience? And she said, What what caused you to be able to like keep pulling yourself up and doing, you know, facing life over and over again and not just sort of curling up in a corner and like and putting the covers over your head? And I said, resilience or fortitude. And she said, I, I honestly don't think that that's what it was. It's up, there's something else to it because in the book, I talk about some of it, it involved some challenges with some doctors that I had to deal with with my son and some challenges that I had to deal with with my own health issues. And so it wasn't just resilience and and bouncing back, but some of it had to do with also having to beat my own drum and like go against the current. And her point was, if you were going against the current each time and then also bouncing back to go against the current again, what was that? So like, how did you keep going against the current and not curl up in a ball and put the covers over your head? She encouraged me to take some time and think about it and come up with a term. And her point was, I think she thought that it should be my own term that would describe me. And that's what I did. It took some time and I thought about it. And what I came up with was defiantly resilient. And that's what I feel like you can become if you execute all of these six 
terms. And when I say defiantly resilient to people, they ask if I'm trying to make them defiant, which is not what defiantly resilient means. Mm-hmm. What it means is the ability to bounce back from adverse situations with a renewed strength and purpose, hope, power to continue to want to go on. And that you're able to curate information that's given to you with confidence to know whether you want to take that information in or whether you want to discard it and that you have the confidence to do that and that you can also curate that information with strength, hope, and purpose, even during adverse situations. That's what defiantly resilient means. It doesn't mean that you just get up and go along. It means that you can continue to problem solve even in the most difficult situations. And that's what defiantly resilient is. Yeah, I appreciate that because we all, you know, we all have our own moments like you had and this perspective of learning and growing from those challenging moments, I think is, is really, really insightful. And in the book, so you, you've alluded to a couple of them, like avoiding assumptions. You talked about facing fears already, but in your book, you list out these six traits or six things to a sustain, six techniques to a sustainable life of satisfaction, depending on how you feel answered to answer this. If you go through them all, or if there's some ones you pick out based on our conversation, I would like to turn it over to you just to talk about these techniques because I really, I think they're really, really interesting and valuable. Well, one question that I kind of like to ask, unless you mind, is which one struck you? Because what I find is that everybody that I talk to notices that one, some, or all of them strike each person. And that's What I love about talking to people about the book is that I've never met anybody so far that hasn't been struck by at least one of them and usually more than one. And that is fun for me, actually. So unless you you mind that, I'm curious which one struck you. And then I would like to speak to that one first. (laughs) I feel like there was a cluster of three. And and so my mind's going on this human experience of money is how do humans experience money? And I feel like it's full of fear. So facing fear spoke to me. Assumptions. There's so many assumptions. You should have this much money. You should get this much for your return. You should retire at 65. You shouldn't take a, like a retirement at say 35. And then decision-making. Because I feel like all of those fears, shoulds, assumptions, then put us in an overload of decisions and we don't face decisions. So those three kind of spoke to me when I think about it, this, this context of the human experience of money. Great. That's awesome. So let's, why don't we start with assumptions and facing fears and making decisions. <laughs> In terms of assumptions, we all make financial assumptions. I think that you're right. I think that it, we would not be, it would not be human nature. It's common humanity to make financial assumptions. And what we all are making guesses about what we think people are going to say or think about us. And that impacts our behavior. It impacts our overall well-being. So many of us are focused on keeping up with the Joneses, the shoulds about money and how we feel like we need to impress our friends, how we feel like we need to keep our friends. When by and large, our friends don't really care about our personal financial situation. They care about our values more than they care about our money. And most of our friends are more concerned about their own situation with money. Not <laughs> They don't care about our situation with money because again, it's a common humanity issue that everybody's concerned about the same thing. So they are looking internally as well. One of my clients was 
is always disappointed every time he goes to somebody else's house that is nicer than his house because he makes an assumption every time that just because they have a nicer house, that must mean that they have an easier life than he has. And that's an assumption he makes. And I think that that's a very common assumption that people make. They see someone with a nicer house and that must mean that they have an easier life. A similar assumption that I see people making all the time is this new outfit social media phenomenon where Mm -hmm. everybody has to post on social media in a new outfit all the time. And I think what that's a, a sign of is that people are making assumptions that other people think that it's a demonstration of limited funds or a limited wardrobe if you're not constantly posting in a new outfit, because that means that you don't have the money to buy a new outfit if you're not posting, if you post in, you know, an outfit two times. And so I think that you can see, I mean, there's many things you can see on social media that's coming out in finances, but I think that you're even seeing it in younger generations and how it's being exhibited through clothing. It's really important when you think about assumptions that you ask yourself whether you actually have concrete evidence that would hold up in a court of law in front of a jury of your peers to support these assumptions that you're making about money to balance your thinking about this, to ask yourself, do you know it to be true? Do you know it to be true that people in your life are treating you differently because of the home that you have, because of the clothes that you wear, because of the shoulds that you have in your mind about what you're saving, what you're spending, what kind of car that you drive. And to focus on the now instead of these assumptions that you're making, because by focusing on the now, it's it's only way for you to actually then be on a path towards improving your overall life satisfaction. You uncovered a lot of assumptions that we do have in around money. And I like that. Focus on the now and asking ourselves, Do you know it to be true? Let's talk about making decisions and facing fears. I like Mm -hmm. to talk about these when it comes to finances. When I talk about other things, when I talk about relationships, when I talk about jobs, when I talk about life, I don't usually put them together. But I think when we're talking about money, it's important to put finance, put making decisions and facing fears together, which is why I think it's interesting that you put them in a cluster. Because I too would put those two together in a cluster when it comes to finances. I think that it's hard to break apart making decisions and facing fears when it comes to money. And I think that it's because when you think about making decisions, it's it's really difficult for people to look at making decisions as not binary People see making decisions as either right or wrong. And they look at making decisions when it comes to their finances is that they're either going to, you know, spend the right amount, save the right amount, make the right or wrong decisions. And they don't recognize that when they make a financial decision, many times the financial decisions that they're making are guesses and that these financial decisions that they're making change course of their lives based on changing needs. And also because not all variables are within our control. So some of the needs that we anticipate could change. And based on an unanticipated need, the financial decisions that we make could change and we need to pivot. So in that way, we're constantly guessing. And that's why it has to be more fluid than just deciding I'm going to do this. We have to be able to look at the decisions that we make as fluid. But there's an intersection between making decisions and facing fears because 
when people make decisions to be super safe with their finances, they can look back on having been super safe and then be dissatisfied with their lives because they didn't do a lot of the things that they may have wanted to do with their lives because of that decision and feel like they didn't travel. They didn't enjoy their lives because they were so busy saving money and they didn't spend any of it. And in that way, they didn't face any fear by spending any of the money. So they came to life with a scarcity mentality instead of a balance between a scarcity mentality and an abundance mentality. And it's really important to look at life with that kind of balance. How do you balance between a scarcity mentality and an abundance mentality? Otherwise, you traffic in fear. And a lot of people do traffic in fear when it comes to their finances. I have a lot of couples that disagree on how to manage their money. And it is a disagreement between decision-making and facing fears. In fact, that's the number one thing that couples argue about, right, is their finances. And you might think that women are more naturally risk-averse, but I have seen it go both ways where sometimes men are more naturally risk-averse and sometimes women are more naturally risk-averse. I worked with a couple where the husband was very financially risk-averse and they had saved and saved and saved and they were in their early 60s And they hadn't done very much to enjoy the finances. And the woman really wanted to have a good time. And she turned to me in one session and she said, don't you think 15 million is enough? 15 million. (laughs) Now, for many of us, that would be enough. But again, there's no right or wrong. It's not prescriptive for any one person for us to know what a person's tolerance is for saving versus debt or what's living at below or within a person's mean. So for couples, I think sometimes it's it's so important for them to be able to negotiate between them what is a good decision, what is facing fears, what's going to work so that they don't argue about it. And frequently I recommend that they bring a financial advisor into this discussion in order to mediate between the couple because sometimes it's a conversation that they can't have on their own. And if they're going to focus on how they're going to achieve life satisfaction, they need to come to some kind of authentic decision together. And that's the best way for them to be able to work together and most effectively as individuals and as a couple. Thank you for all of that. You know, that last comment of working together and is an effective way to make decisions. I think it's important that people like yourself are are having conversations in the financial world, like your book too, is because I don't know if we're suited as financial planners. I know I I know we're not suited right now to really sit with these fears of both of the, the clients and help guide them through an effective conversation. Because I, I, I would assume, and you would know, like, I, I think at times we don't even realize that we're talking at each other in a, in a relationship and those are just our fears talking and we aren't even recognizing those fears. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of times when we don't. I mean, I have sat many times with couples and had these conversations and not only about just their fears, but also where did the fears come from? And it's amazing how often reenactments from their past come Mm -hmm. up in the fears. It's not just fear that, you know, happened to just land in their lap, but how each of their families managed money comes into it or didn't manage money comes into it Mm -hmm. or, or even 
for me, I've noticed like my work ethic from a very young age came from and recognize that it came because I'm a third generation Holocaust survivor. And I think that my desire for financial security, you know, is probably passed down in my DNA code and that that probably impacts the financial decisions that I make. And so there are so many things that impact how we view money, whether it's from our, you know, generational trauma or whether it comes from how our parents dealt with money or didn't deal with money, the modeling, or, you know, there's so many things that can contribute to it. And then that impacts how we deal with decisions and how we deal with facing our fears. Yeah, I think, and back to that, making decisions together, I think there's a lot of value in bringing awareness to those cultural parent, what you said, did or did not do conversations and so forth, so that we get a little bit more awareness through our whoever we're trying to communicate with our money with. But this, this brings me to your point about reduced people pleasing. It, it pulls into this, our backgrounds of money because you, you specifically say avoid situations of codependency and enmeshment. Codependency, it's interesting because if we look back, we might see reasons why someone might be codependent on a spouse for money. And also like this idea of financial enmeshment where Maybe as a child, we were too much involved. Mom and dad were trying to like maybe educate us, but now they're, now we're getting too many weird feelings as a child. And, and so how does this all show up? This question doesn't specifically need to be in and around money, but this idea of codependency and enmeshment, can you speak to those two words specifically when you talk about avoiding people pleasing? I mean, I think I have seen it very often related to money because okay, it's a kind of thing where if a parent and a child are enmeshed in terms of wanting to please a parent with the financial decisions that they're making, then they may check in with a parent all of the time to make sure that they're making proper financial decisions and look for a lot of praise from the parent around that. And then, you know, feel that if they were to deviate from the parent's, you know, decisions around finances that they could, you know, there might be alienation on the part of the parents. Similarly, that could be the case with a significant other also that there might be alienation. And what that does is creates a lot of self-doubt on the part of the person that is codependent. And then that decreases their feelings of worth and effectiveness in the world and competency. And that also creates resentment because they feel like they're not, you know, individuated. They feel like they're not making authentic choices. They feel that they're not autonomous. And so it's important that they figure out how to start to have some kind of transparent conversation about how do you start to set some boundaries slowly, slowly, slowly about making some financial decisions on your own so you begin to trust yourself or they will never trust themselves to make some small financial decisions and then see how it goes so that you can start to believe in your you know, worth, effectiveness in the world. And with each financial decision you make, no matter how small or large, those build on themselves in terms of decreasing resentment with the person that you're enmeshed with, but also in terms of increasing confidence. And with each one of those decisions that you make on your own financially, it improves satisfaction. 
Thank you. I, I appreciate how it got back to the improving satisfaction. I have one final question that I've asked everyone on the podcast, and I'm modifying it s- slightly today. But let's imagine you're at end of life, however old that is, it is. You're sitting on a front porch looking out at something, someplace, whatever it is, that brings you complete peace, ease, and contentment. And you decide to bring out a notebook and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about living a life of enduring satisfaction. What would be a theme to that letter? That they should focus on spending time trying to learn themselves, quiet the noise around them, and that being their own person, even if it feels sometimes like that can be a lonely experience, in the end can be extremely liberating and beautiful and that eventually, even though initially it can feel lonely, the people will come. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. Learn themselves, quiet the noise, and be their own person. And I intentionally left money out because I think it's important that we understand this first and then once we know this, we can use money as, as we try to say the tool, but I think it's important we first identify these things. So thank you so much. I feel like I could pick your brain for an entire day, but I, I'll respect time limits here. Can you point our listeners to your website where they can get a copy of your book and anywhere else you would like to suggest they find your work? Sure. Thank you. So my website is Gutman, G-U-T-T-M-A-N, psychology.com. And you can also find my book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And my Instagram is Gutman underscore psychology. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I do. I'm really looking forward to 2024 and all the fascinating conversations that will ensue. Until next week, have yourself a good one. Freedom story with every breath Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.